Yeah, what a, what a privilege to open the Word of God with you guys, to be with you. As Darren said, we just got here, and people were asking us, how are you acclimating? And we're doing okay. We're doing okay. I now wake up and know that it is, um, that I live in Florida, um, but I'm still not sure what season or what month it is. I'm a little, I'm a little messed up. But we, uh, we have met so many of you, and if we haven't yet, I hope we get to know you. If you're watching the live stream, hopefully we get a chance to meet you soon as well. But uh, what a privilege to open the Word of God. And so I'm going to ask you to take your Bible, find 1 Peter. And uh, 1 Peter's towards the very back of your Bible, towards the back of the New Testament there. And go ahead and find 1 Peter. Look for the big number 3. That's where we're going to be, 1 Peter 3. And while you're finding the book of 1 Peter 3, I am going to take you back to 7th grade. For some of, there's like traumatic things that just happened in some people's minds. I think that was a long time ago for some of us. But uh, back in seventh grade, middle school, it's a tough year. It's still a tough year, right? Press. <laughs> One of my daughters is in seventh grade. Seventh grade. I went to public school in seventh grade, and it was the only year that I went to public school. I went to Christian school my whole life except for that one year in seventh grade. And so I showed up in that public school like a deer in the headlights, and uh, I had really one goal. My one goal was to survive, stay under the radar, and that I, no one would notice me. And so as a Christian, in a different environment from what I was used to, I remember thinking, I don't want to be different. Now, that's true for like most seventh graders. <laughs> you don't want to be different. But I, I was especially as a Christian thinking, I don't want people to think that I'm different. Now, in the book of 1 Peter, which we've been walking through, this letter is about being called out and sent in. And one of the ways that we're called out and sent in is God changes us. He changes our life. And then we evidence that God does change lives. And so we become distinct, distinctly different, right? Distinctively different. And this morning, uh, I want to talk about this from our text of 1 Peter chapter 3. And in our text today, the way that Peter describes being called out, sent in, distinctively different is he says, do good. He tells us in, in, in numerous ways to do good. And so I want to see that in our text this morning. And if we do good in the ways that he tells us, then we will be distinctly different. So look at 1 Peter 3 if you find that in your Bible. And I'm going to read, follow along. This is God's word in 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 1. And we're going to read uh, through verse 17. So here's God's word. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word... They may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is God, in God's sight is very precious." Verse 5, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. And we'll keep reading, but I just want us to stop and acknowledge the difficulty of the text I get for my first opportunity to share the Word of God, full of landmines, women and men. 
But this is God's word, and this is what he's given us. And it's a precious word, okay? And I mean that. I'm not just saying that, okay? Uh, verse 8, following here. Finally, uh, you know, Peter's zooming out now. We're looking at all, all relationships, okay? Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame." For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. This is God's word. Now, there are multiple ways in this text in which we are to do good, to, to live this goodness of God out. And the first I want to see this morning is do good towards your spouse. So if you're married here today, Peter is instructing us, do good towards your spouse. We're called out of the darkness which means we're, 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 we're called to live differently in every area of our life, including our marriage, including in the home, the relationships that we have in the home. Now, here's one of the parts of the Bible that gives us direction when it comes to marriage. In fact, these verses are called household codes. That's what they would have been known as. And, and here we're getting intensely practical, right? Because it's one thing to be a follower of Jesus here in this gathering, right? And to, and to sing out and to hear the word preached, and we're all disciples here today and everything, but it's another thing to walk out and walk in the way of Jesus when we're at home, right, with the most intimate relationships of our spouse, husband and wife, parents and children. And God wants our marriages to stand out. He wants them to be countercultural, distinctively different. And when we look at what Peter says here in this text and we compare it to the Greco-Roman culture of that day, what Peter is calling husbands and wives to is very distinct. It's very different. It's countercultural. And I want to start by looking at Peter's instruction to wives. So look at verse 1 through 6 with me, wives. And I would say that verses 1 through 6 are generally misunderstood. Because at first blush, if you read it, you might think, well, Peter's saying the role of the wife is to be quiet, dress plainly, and serve her husband's every need. And uh, some might have interpreted it this way <laughs> to see what they want to see, I think. But Peter's instruction here is not meant to suppress wives. Even though we read it today and we're like, whoa, these verses, that is not his desire to suppress wives. No, he actually, what we'll see in a moment when we look at the instruction to husbands, is that he is meaning to dignify wives and, and, and uphold wives and empower wives. So what could this possibly mean, verses 1 through 6? Here's a couple things. First, wives are to follow their husband's leadership. So if you're taking notes there, you can put wives are to follow their husband's leadership. Now, there is order in a marriage, just as there is order in the government, in society, 
Just as there is order in the Godhead, right? The Trinity includes God the Father, God the Son. You have Jesus Christ who is God in every way, right? And yet he submits himself. He follows the leadership of the Father. And that was a relationship that was pure, that was loving. There was no demeaning going on there. Another thing, wives are to honor their husband. And here we have an illustration of Abraham and Sarah, right? It throws us back to the book of Genesis, and we, you can read about that later if you want, Abraham and Sarah. And in the days of Abraham, it would be honoring to call your husband Lord, like lowercase l. Think Downton Abbey, right? Like it, it's, 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 a, it's a term that would have been of respect in that day. Now today, in 2021, if a wife were to call her husband Lord, it would be dishonoring to her. It's a different culture, But the principle remains the same, and that is show respect to your husband wherever you can. The Bible actually is clear that there is mutual honor in the marriage. And we could turn to other passages if we had more time, and we could see that the husband is to honor the wife, the wife is to honor the husband. It's this mutual honoring. One other thing, wives are to focus on their own character and conduct. Peter gets into here, you know, what it means to be a woman and what it means to be a godly woman. And no matter what a marriage looks like, and I don't know what your, the state of your marriage today, I don't know, but whatever your marriage looks like, you will be used as a wife most effectively if your character is solid, if you show kindness and you show purity. So much so that Peter says, you know what, you could actually Evidence to an unbelieving husband, a a husband who doesn't know Christ yet, who's not walking with Jesus, you can show him that there's power in the gospel, that he changes people, and that as a wife, you could actually be used by God to change somebody's heart. That's how powerful it is to live with a character that is pure, a character that is kind, that has integrity, that is trustworthy, that's full of grace. Look at Peter's warning in verse 3, and what he says in verse 3 here is, you know, don't let your adorning be external, and he he shares some details in that day, which would have uh, been very applicable. And again, people read these verses wrong. They think that women should be homely, unkept, avoid jewelry. Absolutely not. And I'm not just saying that because the women in here would kill me. But I live with four of them, too, by the way. So three of them are here. And, and, and it's not just because of that. No, it's because that's not what the text actually means. <laughs> it's, the text actually doesn't mean, you know, go out of your way to be ugly. Like, that's not what it's saying. <laughs> Notice the wording here. Look at, look at the, the wording actually says, don't let your adorning, that word adorning, be external. So he's saying, don't let your adorning, your beauty, your reputation, what people know you for, don't let that come from the outside. Don't let it be all about how you look. It's fine to braid your hair or dye your hair or, you know, wear jewelry of whatever sort. That's not where true beauty lies, though. He's saying it's okay, okay to, to look good, but looking good on the outside is not the same as an inward character. True beauty comes from the inside out. And even, even an unbelieving husband, he says, will appreciate inward character. That's, that's interesting to me, Right? So basically, if I could sum it up for you ladies who are married in a phrase, it would be this. It's not about looking good, but doing good. He says several times, do good. And here he's saying, it's not about looking good, it's about doing good. So it's okay to look good. In fact, that might be nice for your husband. But he's saying, it's about doing good, having character, having integrity. Paul's words to Timothy are very similar over in the book of uh, 1 Timothy 2. And he says, likewise, also that women should adorn themselves 
in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, notice, with good works. So same thing, Paul's saying, that stuff's not bad, but your good works are what adorn you. That is what is beautiful, a life changed by Jesus. So we see what it means for wives to do good towards their husband. Before I go on, let me be really clear about what it isn't. We saw what it means to do good to your husband. What, about, what does it not mean? And I just want to say wives are not to be doormats. These verses are not an endorsement of abuse. And I appreciated that, that Darren shared last week, if you are a woman who's in an abusive relationship, we're asking you to get help. That's not okay. And, th- and that's not what, what Peter's saying here. He's not saying just endure that. Just, you know, don't talk to anyone about it. Just deal with it. No, you need to get help. I want to emphasize that. Submission to your husband is not without limits. Just like submission to authority, government is not without limits, right? But Peter himself, who wrote these words, Peter said, when he stood before authorities, he said, we ought to obey God rather than men. And so there are times where submission no longer is appropriate, but by and large, he's saying this attitude of honoring and respecting. How could you be different? Here's where it becomes really hard. You know, this is where the rubber meets the road. Maybe you're in a marriage and your husband is, is unpleasant or discouraging at this season in your marriage. What do you do? This is where it becomes really hard, but it becomes really easy to be distinctly different. If you remain quiet when everything inside of you wants to lamb blast him, and you might be able to, (laughs) you'll be different. If you maintain a gentleness without throwing those sharp words back, you'll be different. If you spend greater effort on internal beauty and character than on external beauty, you'll be different. And don't think that people won't notice. This, This is something that people will notice, and they'll wonder. I want to look at husbands here, verse 7. Got to look at husbands, right? Husbands in verse 7, uh, Peter says this, and I'm going I'm to phrase it this way. So we said about wives that it's not about looking good but doing good. With husbands, it's not about being honored. It's about showing honor. It's not about being honored. It's about showing honor. And, and here's the first of three ways that husbands are called to do good to their wife. First, husbands are to honor their wife. We just said that. Verse 7. There is mutual honor in marriage. And right here, we have it very clearly. Husbands, honor your wife. And this is not what marriage looked like in the Greco-Roman culture. In in that day, marriage, I mean, a wife's responsibility was to honor her husband. That's what she was there for. And so when he writes these words, you know, husbands, honor your wife, this would have been like mind-blowing for people. This is about honoring somebody else, not being honored. That's not why your wife exists. To honor you, you're called to honor In fact, in this day and age, women were very vulnerable. They didn't have any rights. They didn't have power. And I believe this is why Peter says, husbands, treat your wives as the weaker vessel. Because sure, you know, women are generally speaking physically uh, not as strong as men, though that's not always the case. But in this society, you did not have the power. You didn't have the advantage. You didn't have the ability. And so Peter is telling husbands, remember this. Remember that your wife is more vulnerable. Protect her. Honor her empower her because they are not lesser in any way. They are equal in every way. Can you imagine the readers hearing this concept of women are dignified, women are equal in every way? Very countercultural. I want you to hear how the message phrases this. I I love this, and, and it says, 
1 Peter 3, 7, the same goes for you husbands. Be good husbands to your wives. Honor them. Delight in them. As women, they lack some of your advantages, but in the new life of God's grace, you're equals. Treat your wives then as equals so your prayers don't run aground. And it's a little excursus for husbands here. We see in this text that if you treat your wife poorly, your, your prayers are hindered. In fact, your relationship with your wife and the effort you make to love her actually is related to your relationship with God. And that's intense for me to think about. Like if, if, if I'm pursuing my wife and loving her well, then my prayers will be heard. If I'm not, then my prayers will be hindered. That might be the only thing you go home with as a husband and go, I need to really pray through this. I need to contemplate how is my relationship with my wife. Another thing is husbands are to strive to understand their wife. Now, this, this verse, I think, is, a, is one that I want to keep before my eyes all the time. And I've challenged many men over the years with it. I've challenged myself. Even this week, I'm thinking to myself, Mark, you're going to preach this. Are you living with your wife in an understanding way? Right? Because it, it can be hard to put ourselves in her place. Think about things from her perspective and I'm going to speak for myself, but I've talked to a few guys after the first service who, who con, you know, conferred this and said this is true. Men kind of like to coast a lot of times, right? Like you, you pursue her, and then you pop the question, and then she says yes, and then you get married, and, and then you're like, I'm good. You know, like I, I'm, I'm okay now. Only to find out, no, no, you're not good. You had to still date your wife. You had to still pursue your wife because it's kind of built into her the way that God made her is to be pursued, to be cherished, to be made to feel special. And us as men have to hear that a lot. I got to constantly remind myself, here's what 1 Peter says, live with your wife in an understanding way, which means I need to try to understand her, which means I need to constantly grow in this area because we change as people, Right? Through the years, we've been married almost 20 years, I can tell you that I need to learn to understand her because I've changed and because she's changed and because it's just part of a relationship. So this is so good for me as a husband to constantly go over it. And I'll share this good advice with you from Wayne Grudem. He says this about this verse. He says, a husband who lives according to such knowledge, knowledge of his wife, will greatly enrich his marriage relationship. Yet such knowledge can only be gained through regular study of God's word and Regular, unhurried times of private fellowship together as husband and wife. That's good, right? Because we have to spend this time together, unhurried. How are you doing? Where are you with this? Talk to me. Like that kind of knowledge, that growing, that understanding. One more thing. Husbands are to treat their wife like a co-heir. H-E-I-R, co-heir. And, and verse 7, it says that women are heirs of grace, just as men are. A husband, you, your wife doesn't need you to dispense grace to her like you're a mediator, okay? She receives grace directly from God. Jesus shed his blood on her behalf. And so she is a co-heir just like you, and my wife is a co-heir just like me. We stand equal at the foot of the cross, equal in every way. We should treat them that way, love respect them. Again, so shocking, right? Your co-heirs, equal in this way. These are Peter's thoughts on marriage, and it goes against the grain of his day, and even still today, if we think about our society. Now, that was verse uh, 1 through 7, and now when we get to verse 8, we kind of zoom out a little bit, right? And we, we see not just marriage, not just do good to your spouse, but as he goes on, Peter says, do good to all. 
Do good towards all. So if you're single here, you're not left out here. All of us. And even as married couples, we need to think beyond just the marriage and think, what, how am I to treat uh, other people in my relationship? So I want you to look at verse, uh, verse 8 again here. And it says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Now, remember, Christians are reading this letter. And so I, I believe that Peter's saying, do good to all people, and starting with the family of faith, starting to those who are pursuing Jesus, are disciples of Jesus, we, there should be some things that are true about us. First, he says, unity of mind. Be unified in your mind, which doesn't mean we agree on all things. That's not what it means. Because I promise you, in this room, we don't agree on all things. We have a divergence of opinion. But if we can maintain charity and grace-filled unity amidst the divergence of opinions, wouldn't that be different from almost every other place in the world? Think about it right now. I mean, we live in a divisive time. We live in, you know, all kinds of people have, you know, views on everything, right? If we as a church in this politically supercharged COVID culture, if we can maintain unity and love for one another, won't that speak loudly? It will. It's very different from probably any other arena, we can do good towards those we disagree with. Now, he also goes on to say, have sympathy. And that, if you look at that word sympathy there in verse 8, same root as all the, the times that suffering comes up. So if you look, kind of glance through your Bible there, you'll see suffering a lot in First Peter. Same basic word there is sympathy, which means to suffer with, suffer alongside of. To have sympathy with somebody is to come alongside of them in their suffering. So who do you know right now who's suffering? And I don't know what it might be, but are you having sympathy with, with them? Are you stepping into the mess of whatever it is that they're dealing with? Sympathy isn't just like, oh, I feel sorry for you. No, it's I'm going to step into the mess with you. So they're going through a divorce maybe, and you say, I'm going I'm to step into that with you. I'm going to pray through that with you. I'm going to encourage you, help you grieve that, help you own what you, you, know, you, you need to repent from and just walk through life and, and, and please God. Or it could be you know, sickness or job loss or maybe somebody has debilitating depression. To come alongside, to step into their mess and just sit with them, read a psalm to them, just be there for them. That is sympathy, stepping into, suffering with. This is how Peter says we are to treat one another as the body of Christ. And then he goes on in the rest of our text and, and, and kind of zooms out even more and says, you know what? You're to treat every person, every person with goodness and with charity. Do good toward all. What about the people who hate Christians? What about the people who persecute? What about what they were experiencing this day, that persecution? What about those people, Peter? Yes, even them. Even them were to do good to all, he says. Basically, in verse 9, following, we have do good even when it hurts. Do good even when it hurts. And he says, pursue peace. Pursue peace. Go after it. You're going to have to pursue it. It's not going to happen like automatically. And especially if people are hurting you, persecuting you, against you, you're going to have to pursue it with everything that you have holding on to Jesus Christ. And he writes, says this about pursuing peace. He says, follow after it in the way you would with a dog that has panicked and run off in a busy town. Don't expect peace to come to you when you whistle. And uh, that really resonates with me because we have like a 110-pound golden retriever who, if he escapes, it's a game. 
right? We, we, we run after him. He just sits there. We get close. He's like, oh, and he runs away. And we get close again, and we have to let, it's, you know, he's getting a little better, but we now live in a busier area. He's already run into the street a couple times. And I think about this. Peace can be elusive sometimes, right? You, you, you want it, but you're going to have to pursue it. You're going to have to do what Peter says, and you're going to have to really check yourself and say, God, I need you right now because everything inside of me does not want to live at peace with this person. They're hurting me. But he says, pursue it. And we're only going to be able to maintain peace in this kind of situation if we remember that God sees everything and that God is a God of justice. I don't have to bring retribution. It's not on me to fix all this stuff. That's God. God's the one who's sovereign, so I trust him. And if I know that God sees everything and God is just, then I can maintain with people peace with people that don't even want to maintain peace with me. Even though this means we will relinquish vengeance, we will be mistreated, we will experience blessing, he says, and what Peter describes as the good life. In verse 10, in 10 through 12 here, we have this idea of a good life. And, and here's, the, here's the line I'll give you. The good life comes from living a life that's good. You're like, well, Mark's brilliant. Wow, okay. The good life comes from living a life that is good. But I want you to think about what I just said because most people don't believe that's true. What do most people think about the good life? They think the good life comes from, you know, taking what you can, looking out for number one, advancing, right? That's the good life. And, and Peter said, no, the good life is actually doing good. The Bible turns this all in its head and it says, the good life comes from doing good, trusting in God and, and letting him reward me. Not grabbing it for myself, not always usurping my rights, but saying, God, I'm, I'm, I'm trusting you. Because right now it's not working out, but you're in control. That's the good life. And it's not easy. It is not easy. It's going to require the Spirit's power. It's going to require a community of believers who encourage one another, who challenge one another. It's really what it takes. But this will be distinctly different. Last thing I want you to see this morning is that people will notice when we do good. If you, if you live in this way, towards your spouse, or you live in this way towards believers, or you live in this way towards, towards everyone, people are going to notice that. Some will notice it in a bad way, and they'll mock us, but some will notice in a good way. Look at verse 15 one more time. Verse 15 here says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. You know, some people wonder why we live the way we do. Why do our marriages look the way that they do? Why our church family is a place of peace and unity even though we don't agree? Why can we endure mistreatment and entrust ourselves to God? Why? And by the way, this is the silver lining about our society and our nation becoming post-Christian. I know a lot, of, a lot of Christians are lamenting this, right? And I get it. I got three daughters. I hope to have grandkids. Like, and they're growing up in a world that is less Christian, and I put that in air quotes, than the world that I grew up in. I know that. And it can be hard to see those, those changing happen, but I put that in air quotes because it's not that we're necessarily less Christian. It's that we're much more comfortable about being honest, about a lack of faith, I mean, it's in vogue to, to not be a Christian. So even as our society becomes blatantly adverse to Christianity, there is a bright 
silver lining, and I want you to be encouraged with this this morning, because as society changes, those that have been changed by Jesus, called out and sent in, just look that much more different. So even as society changes, that doesn't mean the church won't advance. No, in in fact, God will use his church in incredible ways. I'm encouraged with that. True followers of Jesus will stand out even more. But here's the final catch. Uh, We should stand out for our character and integrity, not because we're obnoxious, okay? So a lot of people would describe Christians as different, but it's just code for self-righteous weirdo. Right? That's what they mean. Those, those people over there, they're kind of they're different. There's a lot of a meaning in a word. I mean, even the title of this sermon could be a derogatory descriptor, right? Distinctly different. I didn't want to be distinctly different in seventh grade. <laughs> but, but, uh, but we need to understand what does this mean. In fact, I, uh, we're trying to buy a house, and so that's not for the faint of heart right now. And um, we're on Zillow a lot. And I've learned the code of Zillow home descriptions, Right? It, words carry a lot of meaning, so, so it says um, charming or cute, which means small. I know that now. Uh, vintage means it needs updating. And here's one that was tricky. It almost got me. Well-maintained also means up, needs updating. I mean, I'm so glad it was well-maintained, but it obviously needs to be updated, right? So, like, what you say, what you say might have different meanings. And when we talk about being different, let's be really clear what we mean about being different, There's a temptation for some Christians to look at our society changing, right? Circle the wagons and kind of buckle in and get ready for a battle. To defend cultural Christianity. I mean, I remember the days of Christian bookstores. Is there a Christian bookstore in St. Pete? I don't know. Probably not. There probably was at one point or in Tampa. And so we see the society changing. We see Christian colleges closed down, Christian schools, all of this. And sometimes we think we're losing it. We're losing the battle. Oh, no, right? And, and we, we, we panic. And honestly, believers get not just defensive, but kind of desperate. And that's so not the attitude that Peter's calling us to here. He's not saying you need to be desperate. He's not saying oh, circle the wagons and fight the fight. No, our society is changing. But in the midst of that society changing, we have a mission we something we're called to. And it actually is a brighter silver lining the darker <laughs> that things become. Peter's calling us to interact with not yet believers with gentleness and respect. Verse 15. I mean, this is so beautiful how he says, you know, have boldness. Ha- be ready to share, but do it with gentleness and respect. That is a different kind of Christ follower. So a lot of people have met Christians and they have us in a box. And they say, oh, I know Christians, yeah, I know. And, and, and they have all these bad connotations. And I think what Peter's calling us to is a, another kind of different. One in which is, 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 is shocking, but in a good way. So yes, we're called to be different, called to stick out, but not so much like a, um, a sore thumb, right? More like a healed thumb, somebody who's been, who's been changed by God. But we, we stick out a little bit. In fact, verse 15, Peter says, some might even ask you, how can you be so hopeful even in the midst of hard times? And this doesn't happen as much as we'd like, but sometimes people come up and say, how do you, how do, you do that? Like, how did you lose your loved one? How, do you, how are you going through cancer? How are you living in that difficult marriage and still have a smile on your face? How? And that's an opportunity for us to be able to share the hope that's in us. And this is one of the beautiful things about suffering. And there's not a lot of beautiful stuff about suffering, <laughs> honestly. But 
One of the beautiful things is it becomes a backdrop for the hope of the gospel. Because if life is going great and you're rocking it, not many people are going to go, now why are they so content? Why are they so joyful? Of course they're joyful. They got money. They're successful. Everything is just falling into place. No one's going to ask you then, probably. But when things happen and your life falls apart and you still smile because you have Jesus and you still smile because your sins are forgiven like we just celebrated in communion, and you know that when I wake up in the morning, I'm okay with God because Jesus has paid the price for my sin, so you can endure suffering, that's different. That's different. And people might ask, how can you do this? How can you go through that? Are you living in such a way that anyone would ask you why you have hope? And please hear my words, not as, not as a condemnation like you better live differently. It's more just, let me ask myself, would anyone in my sphere of influence, would they, would they wonder? Am I evidencing that peace and joy? Does your marriage or your other relationship cause people to ponder what's going on? Now, if someone did ask you about your hope, are you prepared to share it with them? And, and I'm going to challenge you maybe to talk about this over lunch or think about this before the Super Bowl. That's like a ways away, okay? Think about this. Think about this idea of what would I say if somebody came up to me and said, how do you do that? Like, how, are you, how do you still have a smile on your face? What, what, what's your hope? What would you say? How would you answer a curious question like that? Where does our hope lie? It's not in ease of life. It's not in the absence of suffering, but it's in the confidence that Jesus suffered in our place, that Jesus took upon uh, himself our sins, the ransom that Josh talked about, right? That Jesus suffered in my place. That means I will never suffer for my sin. If, if I've accepted Jesus in my place, suffering for my sin, then I will never suffer for my sin. I'll suffer in this life but I won't suffer for my sin. And what that does is that gives me confidence. That gives me joy. That gives me an ability to smile even when nothing, there's nothing to smile about because I live for a different kingdom. I live for a different king. Somebody who has ransomed me. Somebody who has freed me. And I'm going to spend the rest of eternity in the happiness that, that Jesus prepared for me. That's my life to come. So even if this life is not roses, and it's not. And even if I suffer, and Peter says you will, I can smile because God is just. He will take care of injustice. And God is merciful. He gives mercy to all who cry out to Jesus Christ. All who turn from their selfishness and their sin, he, he welcomes them into the family of God. These are the truths that allow us to have hope no matter what. And this is the kind of hope that really sticks out like a healed thumb. Would you uh, close in prayer with me? Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this passage, which just so encourages our heart that, Lord, we know as Christians that we're called to be different, to be called out and sent in. But, Lord, we so desperately want to be a good kind of different. We want to be different because our heart has been changed and we treat people the right way. That we do good to all, starting with our spouse, starting with our family, and then to every person we interact with, both Christians and those who are not yet Christians. Lord, I pray that we would look at all people made in the image of God and we would treat people with gentleness and respect and that because of our good behavior and because of our confidence in Jesus Christ, people would get curious. 
Oh God, that's what we want to see happen in St. Petersburg. That's what we want to see happen through every person in this church that the world would, would want to know. And that we could just be real people stumbling through this life but forgiven and changed by Jesus. And Lord, we'll give you all the glory for how you build your church. In Jesus' name, amen.